My name is Mike Sayers, in case you've forgotten. And I'll be your sermonator for the evening. Um, you know, um, some Christians who have more money than me will uh, tell you about how God saved them from this terrible investment opportunity that went bankrupt, right, while others maybe lost their life savings or their shirts and those kinds of things. When the people who lost everything certainly prayed about it and made all the right inquiries and did their homework, There's always that story of how a traffic jam causes somebody to miss an airplane flight that is doomed. And they thank God for that, while the Christian mother of three little children now will have to face a lifetime without dad because her husband died in that flight. Mary and I were in New York uh, last weekend. I went to a men's retreat there. Uh, Went down to the city for just one afternoon, really, just a few hours. And we had never gone to the National September 11th Memorial at Ground Zero, where the Twin Towers once stood. And uh, it's a pretty sobering sight, really. There's a large marble square. I mean, it. I don't know if it's 100 yards square. I don't know what it is, but it's large. And there's a marble slab with the names of the people who died, one after the other, all the way around. And then there's water that goes down inside this square to a pool that's square, obviously. And then there's another square where the water falls down even farther and you can't see the bottom no matter where you stand. And it's sobering. And I know there's stories about people who decided not to go into work that day for some odd reason and praise God for that, but there's also stories of Christian mothers and fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers and children who died when those towers fell. And so it kind of makes you wonder about what we call the sovereignty of God. I mean, how do you deal with that as a person who's a believer in Jesus? Because we all encounter these kinds of storms of life, right? They seem not to care whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you're a Buddhist or whether you're a Hindu or whether you're a Muslim or whether you're an atheist. They just kind of come, they sweep over us, these, these frickin' storms of life. And we got to somehow try to make sense of our faith 
in a sovereign God in the middle of all that. And actually, these are the kind of questions that tonight's passage brings up. It's a long passage. It's a whole chapter. It's 40-some verses. I've actually cut out some things, uh, like cities and ports of call and things like that, to try and make it a little quicker to get through. But you'll get the gist. So, let's go on to uh, Acts 27. This is where the Apostle Paul sails for Rome and is shipwrecked. I'll be using the New Living Translation. Starting in verse 1. When the time came, we set sail for Italy. Paul and several other prisoners were placed in the custody of a Roman officer named Julius, a captain of the Imperial Regiment. If you came last week and you heard Fran talk, you know that Paul's been a prisoner for quite some time, and he's finally gotten his chance now to go appeal his case before Caesar. The next day we docked at Sidon. Sidon is uh, up in Lebanon. Julius was very kind to Paul and let him go ashore to visit with friends so they could provide for his needs. So we know already that Paul is being treated a little bit deferentially on this trip. We're trying to figure out why. My guess is because he's a Roman citizen. And so Julius respects that. He knows that Paul is a learned man, a man of letters, and he allows him to go and have his needs provided by, probably by the Christians who are up there in that area. There are even people who went along with Paul. Obviously, Luke is one of these people who's writing. We went, right? I mean, he's talking like he's there, because he is. There's a guy named Aristarchus, but I won't go into him. I'm just saying Paul had some people who attended him, and also he was a Roman citizen, so he got some deferential treatment. And then putting out to sea from there, we encountered strong headwinds that made it difficult to keep the ship on course. Now, there's a map coming up here next. If you can see, now we start over here, over on the right, probably from the point of Caesarea. Over there, very good, thank you. So from, from Caesarea, we just go up the coast to Sidon, which is, no, no, lower, there we go. Sidon is part of uh, what is now present-day Lebanon, right? And so then they take off from Sidon, and they're saying, we have some difficulty because we're going against the wind. Now, if you're trying to sail a sailboat, anybody with a sunfish or a little skiff, I mean, if you know, it's really hard to go in the direction from where the wind is blowing. You get attack back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And if you stay closer to the shore like they did, it actually makes things easier because the winds aren't as strong sometimes. So they're going to go uh, up here between Cyprus and the mainland. They go over to a town called Myra. See, they're going to keep coming up here. Uh, and then they're going to take a little dip around the island of Crete, which is uh, that where it goes down, right there. That's the island of Crete. Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, let's go on. Uh, half of my family is from Crete, Dave. <laughs> I am half Cretan. You know what the Bible says about Cretans in Titus 1.12. Dirty, swindling, lying, gluttonous liars. So, the other half is Spartan. 
So I'm a jerk, but don't mess with me. All right. Let's go to the next verse, verse 7. We had several days of slow sailing. The wind was against us, so we sailed across to Crete and along the sheltered coast of the island. We struggled along the coast with great difficulty and finally arrived at Fair Havens, which is in Crete. We had lost a lot of time. The weather was becoming dangerous for sea travel because it was so late in the fall. Actually, it might have been this time of year, probably sometime in October, maybe late September. And Paul spoke to the ship's officers about it. Men, he said, I believe there is trouble ahead if we go on. Shipwreck, loss of cargo, and danger to our lives as well. But the officer in charge of the prisoners listened more to the ship's captain and the owner than to Paul. Go figure. And since Fair Havens was an exposed harbor, a poor place to spend the winter, most of the crew wanted to go on to Phoenix, farther up the coast of Crete, and spend the winter there. Phoenix was a good harbor with only a southwest and a northwest exposure. So Paul was a seasoned traveler. I mean, he had been obviously spreading the gospel quite a bit. And according to what we read in 2 Corinthians, he'd already been through a few shipwrecks. Spent a night and a day in the open sea, you know, like just fighting for his life. And, And so he knew... The area. He understood the Mediterranean Sea at that point. And so, and I don't know if necessarily that Paul had heard from God that this ship was doomed if they left Fair Havens, or if it was just his own human wisdom that said, not a good idea, fellas. We don't know. But. Why would they follow the advice of a Jewish prisoner as opposed to the ship's captain and the owner of the ship? I don't think I would, personally. And so these guys decided, hey, look, it's only 40 miles from Fair Havens to Phoenix. Only 40 miles. It's a day's sailing. Easy peasy. We'll just hug the shore, stay close, and get there within one day. Is what they're thinking. Verse 13, when a light wind began blowing from the south, the sailors thought they could make it. So they pulled up anchor and sailed close to the shore of Crete. But the weather changed abruptly, and a wind of typhoon strength, called a northeaster, burst across the island and blew us out to sea. The sailors couldn't turn the ship into the wind, So they gave up and let it run before the gale. Then the sailors bound ropes around the hull of the ship to strengthen it. Now, if you're taking ropes and lashing them around the ship, you are afraid the ship is going to fall apart. And that's what they're doing. This was a terrifying storm. Verse 18. The next day, as gale force winds continued to batter the ship, the crew began throwing the cargo overboard. Now, why would they do that? Well, it makes the ship lighter in the water. 
it makes the ship ride higher in the water, less likely to sink if a wave crashes over it. So that's why they're making the ship lighter. The following day, they even took some of the ship's gear and threw it overboard. The terrible storm raged for many days, blotting out the sun and the stars, until at last, all hope was gone. I mean, if you don't have the stars to guide you or the sun, you have no idea where you are. And they are in this cloudy, dark, gale force storm, and they finally just give up. Verse 21, no one had eaten for a long time. Yeah, probably because everybody was seasick by that point. Finally, Paul called the crew together and said, Men, you should have listened to me in the first place and not left Crete. You would have avoided all this damage and loss. But take courage. None of you will lose your lives, even though the ship will go down. For last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me, and he said, Don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. What's more, God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. So take courage, for I believe God. It will be just as he said, but we will be shipwrecked on an island. Now, here's a little principle I want to pass along to you. If God gives you a word of knowledge that clearly, like if He sends an angel to talk to you, then don't expect the journey to get there to be an easy one. God only gives supernatural direction when you absolutely need it. Like Moses got a burning bush because he was going to need a burning bush for the next 40 years of his life. I remember um, <laughs> this time I was taking a bunch of young people to a concert. And in the middle of the concert, the Lord spoke to me in a way I was frankly not used to. It was as if everything went silent and I heard this voice booming in my head. It wasn't one of my thoughts. But I heard this voice booming in my head and it said, Someday, a band like that is going to come out of your ministry. And I remember thinking, What? And I turned around to see if there was anybody near me who would have said such a ridiculous thing. I was the youth group guy, and so every time some of the kids got a garage band together, I was wondering, is this it, God? Is this it, you know? But, you know, the band never got out of the garage, really. And it didn't happen, and it didn't happen, and it didn't happen for a dozen years. A dozen years. And 1,200 miles. Because by that time, I had left Ohio and moved to Denver. And then I met some guys who were part of an incomplete band called Five Iron Frenzy. It was like a side project. I took the missing link to his first Five Iron Frenzy concert. Dennis Culp, 
who became the trombone player, their arranger, and their business manager, joined Five Iron after I took him to a concert, which is actually at Larry's place, stayed south, back in 1995. Why did I need an just about audible word from God? Because it was going to be a dozen years before that thing ever came around. All right. Next time you're praying for God to give you a sign, remember, if He does, it's going to be a very difficult sign to keep in mind for you for probably quite some time. Easier just to read it in the Bible and apply it to your life, frankly. All right. Now, also, I want you to, to pay attention to something. It's clear that um, this impending shipwreck is really not looked at by Paul as some kind of divine judgment upon his captors, but just kind of, frankly, the result of circumstances. It was not that God was tracking them down with storms and they could not hide, like it was with Jonah. And it was not that they could have avoided the storm if they just had a different attitude toward the premier Christian, you know, in the brig. It's not that either. And yet God, in His goodness, is giving all the people on board safety because of Paul. As Adam Skinner pointed out in our staff meeting, Paul is the prisoner, yet God says, all these people have been given to you. There's a paradox there. And here's the weird thing. I don't know if you've picked this up for reading your Bibles, but God tends to spare non-believers who are around believers. Jesus says that we are salt and light in the world, that we somehow preserve the culture around us and we bring truth to it. Abraham got into an argument with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, would you, would you destroy these cities if there were ten people that were, you know, righteous in there? God says, no, I wouldn't. But if there's just one family, God gets that one family out before He destroys them. It appears that believers preserve the culture around them. And think about this at your work for a minute. I mean, if you have a co-worker who's a believer in Jesus, who sacrifices himself or herself for you and the other co-workers on a daily basis... Isn't that a better place to work than if your coworker is somebody who's selfish and just wants to do things his or her own way and cares nothing about how you're faring in your job? I mean, think about it when you're in a classroom and your teacher is a believer and is fair and doesn't play favorites. You see, as God works on people and their character, it benefits the people around them. And so don't be surprised that God spares all the people on the ship 
Because Paul's there. God likes to do that kind of thing. Verse 27. About midnight on the 14th night of the storm. The 14th night of the storm. Let me repeat that. The frickin' 14th night of the storm! I'm upset when I'm in a storm for three days. God, why haven't you changed this? I thought I was your guy. 14th night of the storm. As we were being driven across the Sea of Adria, which is what it was called back then, the sailors sensed land was near. They dropped a weighted line and found that the water was 120 feet deep. But a little later, they measured again and found it was only 90 feet deep. At this rate, they were afraid we would be soon driven against the rocks along the shore. So they threw out four anchors from the back of the ship and prayed for daylight. Now, why would they pray for daylight? So they could see what was coming. Was it a sandy beach or was it a bunch of rocks? That's why. You want to slow the ship down because you don't know where you're going. This should have been a one-day journey. It is now 14 days. Verse 30, Then the sailors tried to abandon the ship. They lowered the lifeboat as though they were going to put out anchors from the front of the ship to slow it down some more. But Paul said to the commanding officer and the soldiers, You will all die unless the sailors stay on board. So the soldiers cut the ropes of the lifeboat and let it drift away. I mean, if it had been daylight and the ship were holding together reasonably well, it would almost certainly have been safer to stay on the ship than to venture out in stormy conditions in a little lifeboat. But because it's night, and probably because the ship is falling apart... These seasoned sailors are trying to make a dash for it. I mean, think about this. The Apostle Paul knew a little bit about travel, and he knew that they were going to need the whole crew in order to get them onto the shore safely. He knew they were going to be safe, but you would need a full complement of a crew in order to do that So it wasn't just human wisdom. I mean, it was human wisdom, but probably also God had said, keep everybody on board here. I'm going to save everybody. As Kathy Pence said during our staff meeting, the life is not in the lifeboat. The life was not in the lifeboat. You know, these guys were under no obligation to listen to Paul. I mean, think about this for a minute. What was giving Paul validity in their eyes? It was that he was calling the shots of what was going to happen. God was giving him favor in their eyes. Sometimes, frankly, hardships in our lives and the lives of others will give us validity in their lives. You're a Christian. You seem to go through the storms of life fairly well. You don't lose all hope. You're not screaming and kicking. You're still trying to love your family. You're still going to work every day. You're not trying to commit suicide. What gives you that kind of hope? When the storms come, Christians tend to shine. 
Because God is in them working. And that will give you validity in the eyes of the non-believers around you. That will bring glory to Jesus. And it's interesting that everybody had to comply, that they all had to do it together. Jesse Girl said that this is very un-American. That we all have to do it? We all have to do the same thing? Can't we all just do our own things? I mean, your truth is good for you and my truth is good for me. Why don't we just go our separate ways? Pragmatism says that um, abandon your ship and take your chances rowing for shore in a lifeboat. Faith says, stay aboard a sinking ship and trust God's promises. In our churches, how quickly do we abandon God's promises when something more practical appears on the horizon? I mean, the Scriptures are great. We all think that, right? I got Jeremiah 11 tattooed on my back, right? I don't, but... (laughs) But, I mean, it's great to rely on the Scriptures until a more practical solution appears. (laughs) You know? And sometimes in the middle of a storm, we're going, I need a new promise, God. (coughs) I need to know how we're going to do this now. And God comes to us and says, you know, you don't need a new promise. Let me just repeat the one I gave you before, which is what the angel does for Paul. Verse 33. Just as the day was dawning, Paul urged everyone to eat. You've been so worried that you haven't touched food for two weeks, he said. Please eat something now for your own good, for not a hair of your heads will perish. Then he took some bread, gave thanks to God before them all, and broke off a piece and ate it. Then everyone was encouraged and began to eat, all 276 of us who were on board. After eating, the crew lightened the ship further, by throwing the cargo of wheat overboard. I mean, now you're saying goodbye to any hope of profit, any hope of breaking even. That's what that means. The higher the ship can be made to ride in the water, the better. So Paul comes with an encouragement. I mean, it's just he knows God's going to take care of him. He just knows also that they need to be sustained. They need some energy. Their cells in their body are going to need to have some fuel to burn, so you better eat something because we're going to be saved. It's going to be fine. And when that happens, you're going to need some energy to do that. And he turns it into an act of worship somewhat. Doesn't this sound like he's doing communion? I mean, he's not. Or maybe he is for him. I don't know. But for him, it's an act of worship. He gives thanks to God for the bread. He's a prisoner, yet he stops and thinks about everybody else. Verse 39. When morning dawned, they didn't recognize the coastline, but they saw a bay with a beach and wondered if they could get to shore by running the ship aground. Interesting. This is actually now called St. Paul's Bay on the island of Malta. 
So they cut off the anchors and left them at sea. They lowered the rudders, raised the foresail, and headed toward the shore. But they hit a shoal, a sandbar, and they ran the ship aground too soon. The bow of the ship stuck fast while the stern was repeatedly smashed by the force of the waves and began to break apart. The soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners to make sure they didn't swim ashore and escape. But the commanding officer wanted to spare Paul, so he did not let them carry out their plan. You see, if you're a Roman guard and your prisoner gets away, you have to pay his penalty. Sometimes you pay with your life. And that's why they were going to kill the prisoners. But the centurion, the officer in charge, had come to respect Paul even more, and so he wanted to spare Paul's life. He would not allow them to do that. Thank God they were still disciplined enough to follow orders. Then he ordered all who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for land. The others held on to planks or debris from the broken ship, so everyone escaped safely to the shore. <clears throat> Interesting, another insight that came at our staff meeting, Jesse Girl said that uh, at the end you've got these two categories of people on the boat. You've got your swimmers, you've got your sinkers, right? The sinkers had to wait for the boat to literally be blown apart by the force of the waves to break up pieces so that they could grab onto something and make it to the shore. You know, in our churches, very often, we have two categories of people. We have swimmers and we have sinkers. I just want to say that I appreciate all you swimmers who have stuck around. I really do. Thank you for being here, for helping the rest of us to make it through these trying times that we've had as a church recently. I just want to say thank you for that. So, um, next slide. I thought this is a pretty good uh, picture. Application. Number one, use your GPS during storms. There are times in our lives when we don't go the direction that God is leading, right? I've been there. You've been there. We get lost. We need a spiritual GPS. There are some times, I know, I know where, where you leave everything behind to follow Jesus. Everybody here has done that. You've, you've left everything behind to follow Jesus. But there are other times where you've lost your way or you haven't followed the call to move. You've taken a wrong turn. And, you know, it may not be your fault. It may be the fault of somebody else. Some damage that you sustained when you were young. It may be an un unrighteous leader or pastor or somebody that prevented you from following God the way you should have been following God. But God has a GPS, and I'll just say it's a God's positioning system, all right? 
Not a global positioning system, but a God positioning system. Every time you take a wrong turn, God has a GPS for you. You can trust God every time the scenario changes for the worse. I mean, the Apostle Paul and his friends had no choice whether to follow what they thought was the wisdom of God and not leave fair havens. They had to go. They were prisoners. And let me just say that I'm really glad this story is in the Bible. Because if this story wasn't in the Bible, the only other storm at sea picture you would have in the New Testament is Jesus standing on the prow of the boat and telling the storm to quiet down. And it gets like smooth as glass and you're there on the other side. Right? Because God doesn't do that all the time. At least not in my life. I'm sure that Jesus can still every storm. But he does not make us immune from problems that everybody else in the world faces as well. Sometimes he delivers you miraculously from life's storms, and sometimes he gives you courage to endure those storms, natural disasters, and the like. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12. He said, Even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So, so now, Paul says, I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and the insults and the hardships and the persecutions and the troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Um, Anybody here asking God for some relief? A little slack, God. Need a little slack? You know, they call that mercy in the Bible, maybe. But he needs some slack. But no slack is coming. The line is still taut. You're still caught fast. Though Christ can still the storm, we have the courage to face it when he does not. Because we know that through the crisis... God's GPS will work out something good according to all these verses. Romans 8.28 And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to His purpose. Philippians 1.6 I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 41.10 Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. John 10.27-28 My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never, never perish. 
and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Philippians 4.19 My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.8 He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the crazy storms, in the shipwrecks, in the starless nights, in the sunless days, we don't know how God will save us, but we do have His promises that He is with us. And when we get to the end of our lives, we'll be able to look back and say, I have no idea how you did that. That's pretty freaking amazing. Never once did you fail me. As I look back on it, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. You were amazing, God. And we should never say ever that the one who got saved is more godly than the one who was not saved. In fact, maybe the opposite is true. The one who was not saved had stronger faith than the one whose ass God pulled out of the fire. And we must never just glibly say that somebody's storm... Some calamity is a judgment from God. I mean, it might be, but you don't know that. And most of all, by making that pronouncement, we intensify the suffering that the person is going through. They feel worse, not encouraged. So shut up. Sit Shiva. Quietly, next to somebody. Mourn with those who are mourning. That's what we do. Second application. In Jesus, you can be an agent of hope for others in the storm. And it's interesting, as Christians, sometimes I feel like, like we're, we're proclaimers of doom in calm weather and then proclaimers of hope in the middle of the storm. Like, that's our job. Go, that sucks, God. But sometimes I think that's what he wants us to be. I mean, Paul believed strongly in the sovereignty of God, so he could proclaim that kind of thing. I mean, maybe your tendency is to panic. But the longer you're with Jesus, the more steadfast you'll become in your soul. I've seen people change. I've seen people that I would not trust, you know, to carry my books become people I would trust with the life of my children. God does things inside. He changes us. Matthew Henry was an old preacher, 1700s. And uh, he said this. Ladies, just apply it to yourself. I mean, it's the 1700s, okay? Give him a break. There is no greater satisfaction to a good man than to know he is a public blessing. He comforts them with the same comforts wherewith he himself was comforted. God is ever faithful. Therefore, let all who have an interest in his promises be ever cheerful. I like that. To be a public blessing. 
I know Christians who were in politics here in the city. And they are a public blessing. Privately, they hold on to their faith. They talk about it with people who know. They're not afraid to share it. But you know what? They are a public blessing. There's a story about John Wesley. If you don't know who John Wesley was, he uh, was one of the founders of the Methodist Church, a great man of God, but not always so. For a while, John Wesley was just a church guy. Just a church guy. Not a big, bright, shining light, kind of a mousy, not-so-great guy. Religious guy. And uh, he was on a voyage to North America. He's going to be a missionary from England. And a big storm came up, and everybody was afraid. All the English immigrants were afraid. And he found to his horror that he was mortally afraid of dying in this storm. But there's a group of Moravian Christians. Now, Moravian Christians are are from what is now the Czech Republic. My wife's from, her family is from Moravia. We visited there just a couple months ago. These Moravian Christians made a worldwide impact. They were so zealous. And so Wesley looks over, and these Moravian Christians are singing hymns, and they're praying during the storm. And it gives great encouragement to John Wesley. And so afterwards, he goes over to one of them and says, Weren't you afraid? And the man replied, I thank God, no. Wesley persisted. But were not your women and children afraid? No came to reply. Our women and children are not afraid to die. This experience had such a profound effect on Wesley that he kept seeking God even more than he had been until finally God lit a fire in John Wesley as he said, one night my heart was strangely warmed. These Moravian Christians had a giant effect on one guy who was about ready to change the face of not only the British Isles, but also America and the world. Look, you might be in a storm right now. And if you are, I want you to take hope and take courage. And whether you're in a time of storm or whether you're in a time of calm, we come to take communion today. I want you to put yourself in the place of those sailors who were on board and took encouragement and strength from what the Apostle Paul did. Please pray with me. Lord God, Give us strength. Give us hope. Let us always reconfigure our GPS wherever you have us, whatever storm we're in. And Lord, help us to be an agent of hope to folks who don't have a GPS. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.